Hello and welcome to the Scottish Centre for Global History podcast. My name is Anna Adima and I'm a PhD candidate in history at the University of York and today I'll be joined by Olivia Wyatt. Olivia is a master's student at the University of Leeds whose research focuses on Black British history. She volunteers with the Young Historians Project, a non-profit organisation that trains young historians of African and Caribbean heritage and she co-founded From Margins to Centre, an undergraduate conference on marginalised histories, which is held annually at the University of York. Olivia also volunteers at Harewood House, where she researches the house's historical connections to the Caribbean. In this episode, we will be discussing her research, her volunteer work and broader issues around researching Black British history. Hi, Olivia. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited you could make the time. I know you're very busy to talk to us and I'm really excited to hear what you have to say. Um, so could I ask you to start to just talk to me and talk to the listeners a bit about your current research and your work um, with the organisations you volunteer with? Um, yeah, I think a lot, if not all, of my work concentrates on the ways in which we can destabilise popular notions of British history. So whether that is who we define as British, the spaces which we identify as British, or the people who are remembered within narratives of British history. And as I believe the study of history is always personal, I'll be honest in saying that the work that I do also helps me ground and assert my spell of myself, especially during such uncertain times where one moment Black lives and Black history matters and then the next Black history and the authenticity of the Black British experience is being attacked and censored. So as long as I know that the work I'm doing matters not only to myself but to other non-white Britons who were exposed to a national curriculum in which they felt marginalised or non-existent, then I know that I have a duty to see my work through no matter how difficult it can be or how much resistance I may face. And I think during the pandemic especially, it has been incredibly important to focus on a purpose, a goal, something to remind ourselves of how temporary our current situation is and that we must take the right measures to protect and look out for those who could suffer longer term consequences from it. And I, I think that's what drew me to the subject initially, the temporal aspect of history. So when I was younger, I was actually most interested in medieval English history and some people who have known me for a long time will remember that I was adamant I was going to be a Wars of the Roses specialist if you can believe it now looking at what I do. Um, but I was so fascinated by the um, temporal distance between myself and those kings and queens and by how dramatically different English society was back then and I definitely romanticised that in my own head I'm sure loads of medieval historians would come here right now and slap me on the head and looking back at that time I think I was just desperate to escape my own historical experience in Britain and the fact that the people that looked like me um, would have had a harsh experience or not even existed at that time and obviously this was when I knew absolutely nothing about the experiences of black Tudors or black Romans in York mm. because of the curriculum and it was actually my experience in York um, where I did my undergraduate degree, which made me want to study black history. I think attending a, a university in a city that is 94% white was a dramatically different experience to that of the relatively multicultural school I'd attended in Leeds. And also I wrestled with the fact that 
the way in which I was racialized would vary so much from space to space. So sometimes I was racialized as black, sometimes as mixed race. And I think that played a part. And I think that also explains why I immerse myself in the study of history from a young age, because history has the appearance, at least the appearance of being fixed, of being frozen in time. And of course, now I know it isn't. But the study of it was quite comforting when my identity was often being challenged and determined by others. So these experiences made me want to study Black history because I wanted to understand these the range of experiences that I had had um, because of the shade of my skin. And I wanted to learn more about Black people's role in British history so that I learned that history is not the arena of escapism that I naively thought it to be, but that study that the study of it could also answer important questions that society still grapples with. I originally became interested in slavery and colonialism in the Caribbean. And so I had started to think about writing my undergraduate dissertation topic on, I mean, on this topic in about first, second year. And now flashback to when I was younger, my mum had a national trust membership so we were lucky to visit historical sites for days out and walks and so on. But I don't really remember learning about some of these places, historical connections to colonialism and black and Asian people were rarely represented in their informative display boards. So it was during one of my mo more recent trips to Harewood House, which is the ancestral country home of David Lassels, a cousin of the Queen, which is just outside of Leeds. Um, and my friend pointed out that there was a lack of information about the LaSalle's involvement in slavery in the house's display boards. And she encouraged me to look into this history. And then I contacted Harewood House Trust to challenge them about their portrayal of the house's connections to the Caribbean. Um, I'd learned about these connections when I was a teenager, but it was only when I was an undergraduate student that I understood that these enslaved African Caribbeans whose labor had guaranteed the LaSalle's a life of prosperity were just as entitled to be recognized as part of Howard House's history as the lords and ladies on its walls. The trust agreed and I became a volunteer researcher and by then I had already started to write my dissertation on the acts of resistance of enslaved African Caribbeans who lived on the LaSalle's plantations. And I've written about this elsewhere but the main reason I want to research, um, do this research, is because I think it's important for the next black child who visits Harewood and other similar houses to see themselves represented and see their ancestors credited in a house that they helped build but would never have been permitted to visit. And also because I think it's important for the general British public to understand that British history is not simply history that took place on what we now identify as British soil. So the colonial territories at that time were perceived as extensions of Britain, as extensions of Westminster to be more accurate. And therefore the history of Britain's occupation of those territories is just as British as the history of the Georgians and Victorians who resided here in the colonial metropole. So even though Caribbean slavery took place thousands of miles away, this is still British history. And I really wanted the visitors to understand that. But of course, Black Britons have resided in the metropole too, um, before and after Britain's status as a colonial metropole. And that's why in the Young Historians Project, who I volunteer with, um, we focus on neglected aspects of Black British history in the 20th century. Our current project documents the experiences of African women in the British Health Service, which have not only been overlooked within the history of the health service, but also within the Caribbean centered narratives of black British history that we have today. 
And it was being one of the few history students of African Caribbean descent was what led me to join YHP a few years ago after my supervisor, Sam at York, introduced me to them. So not only was I surrounded by young researchers who understood my experiences now, but I was also introduced to the power of oral history as a decolonial and restorative tool. I never would have known what oral history was if it wasn't for YHP, and I especially didn't learn about the importance of it during my undergraduate degree. Um, Michelle Wolf Truelo contended that um, power, which determines which sources survive, begins at the source. If this is the case, and that an unequal balance of power creates silences that infiltrate the processes of historical production, then an oral history methodology that returns power to the individuals involved in that history is one way in which we can combat silences and misrepresentations in the archive. And this is an approach that I've applied to my current research on African Caribbean women's activism in Chapel Town in the 1970s and 80s. But as I've already touched on, and as many people already know, the marginalization of certain voices doesn't only affect the sources that have survived, Institutions, whether through the national curriculum or the university's curriculum, can further marginalise already minoritised groups through the language that they use to frame these narratives, the ways in which they position these narratives within the bigger picture, or their decisions to exclude these narratives altogether. This is one reason why Claire and I decided to organise a conference on marginalised histories at the University of York, um, with a specific focus on the intersectional histories of women, people from ethnically minoritised backgrounds, disabled people and the LGBT plus community. We only wanted undergraduate students to present at this conference because we felt that a great deal of societal change can begin with undergraduate students, especially as history graduates go on to enter many different realms of work. We also wanted the conference to be an opportunity for students to take ownership of the discipline at an early stage and to tell the stories that mattered to them, whether or not they intended to pursue academia, academia professionally. I'm glad to say that the conference was a great success. We had presenters from the University of Highlands in the Islands all the way down to the University of Portsmouth, um, so really represented Britain in that regard. And you can access recordings of all the panels, a gallery, an interactive journal, the papers and posters presented that day on the website marginstocenter.com. We're pleased that one of the presenters, um, Rohin, has organised another Margins to Centre conference this year, and we hope it will become a tradition of the history department at York. Uh, this conference will take place on the 5th of March, and you can get your tickets through the website. I'm not sure when this will air, but <laughs> if it's before, yes. obviously. Um, so... Far from being a stable haven to escape to then, history is constantly changing as our interpretations of it are affected by our evolving mindsets and experiences. And like the study of history, my relationship with history has changed dramatically over the years and it probably will again in the future. Maybe when I was younger, I viewed history as a means to escape the problems of our present, but now I use it to address them instead. Thank you so much, Olivia. That's absolutely fascinating. I really enjoyed hearing about your research and all the volunteer work that you're doing. And in listening to you, I found it really interesting how similar like our paths were. So I didn't grow up in the UK. I grew up in East Africa, but I went to British schools and I learned nothing about African history before coming to, um, to Europe and the UK for my undergrad and my master's. So it's, yeah, it's really interesting how similar kind of our trajectories are in that regard. Um, mm -hmm. 
And I know you kind of didn't really pick this, um, talk about this in your presentation, but can I ask you more about your current postgraduate research at the University of Leeds? Yeah, so um, my research focuses on the community activism of uh, Caribbean women of African descent and their descendants in Chapel Town in Leeds in the 1970s and 1980s. And I'm particularly interested in the ways in which the more radical and militant aspects of Black power unevenly permeated the locality and how they shaped different activist ideas of community. And I'm, I'm also interested in comparing um, their approach to the less militant approach of typically older activists within the same area, um, often they had family connections to. Um, as I've mentioned, I'm interested in women um, because I'm particularly interested in the role they played in the development of this more radical and militant black politics, um, especially as women are not always considered within the radical tradition and the history of it. Um, and I'm interested in how this influenced ideas of who should and should not speak for the community among activists and how those ideas um, created, allowed activists to position older women at, the, at, at least at the public face of campaigns which were associated with children in the area. So for example, the Studley Grange Playgroup campaign of 1972 was led by older women as was the Calcutta Street school strike and so on. Um, I'm also interested in activist decisions to incorporate Africanness into their Caribbean identities and over the years and how that influenced what they believe community should be in light of global decolonization movements and the manifestation of Pan-Africanist thinking. And as I've probably already noted as I've been talking about this project is that I'm particularly interested in the concept of community um, which kind of lies at the heart of it because it acted as an organizing principle for women of all ages, uh, regardless of their backgrounds within the same locality, even when they temporarily organized elsewhere, it was always with the community in mind. So it kind of felt like that should also be at the forefront of my project. Um, also community was paramount to the state's dealings with racism and the ways in which they justified their interventions in areas populated by settled migrants. So governments and councils therefore perceived good community relations and funded community initiatives as ways to subdue the radical elements of black power and the civil unrest of 1981 in particular. So um, that's why I'm particularly interested in how the, the ways in which different activists use community and how that changed over time and whether that was reflective of how institutions talked about community. Um, so that's mainly what my, my postgraduate work is doing. That sounds absolutely fascinating, Olivia. Thank you. Um, and now, kind of um, to talk about your work as a public historian, um, uh, who's at the same time still a student, can I ask what role do you feel that academia has to play in promoting and practicing public history, um, especially those of minority communities? Mm, I think because of the experience and the resources which academic historians have access to, and also um, local historians working outside the academy who have built up um, a reputation, we kind of have a responsibility to ensure that um, the presentations within public history are as accurate as they reasonably can be, or at least to ensure that no story or person is being grossly misrepresented. Um, and I think because academics have access to those to those resources that's how they can come how they can play a role and also the funds which are available through academia so of course researchers themselves 
themselves, as you probably know, are not paid a lot, but institutions yeah. themselves are incredibly wealthy. Um, and so there are ways that we can channel those funds to go into community efforts for preserving and showcasing their history. And I think that's really important to avoid. Um, that's a really important way of avoiding academic vulturism, especially when it comes to oral histories and where, in, where historians are kind of coming into communities coming to very intimate spaces, asking someone to open up about their whole life, essentially. Mm. Um, I kind of feel like as historians and researchers, we then have a responsibility to kind of look out for that person and look out for that history. It's not simply just a source on a piece of paper, it's a real person. Um, so I think that's kind of making sure that funds are channeled to those communities too, so that the people in those communities learn about those histories too. That's a way in which we can avoid that problem. Um, I think also academic historians have, of course, have a responsibility to make sure their research is accessible as they can. So whether that's the language which they're using at academic or public conferences, um, but also how they, the formats in which they present their research. So podcasts such as these are really great because of how accessible they can be for people outside of academia. Um, and I did some work on the You're Dead to Me history podcast, and that was a really insightful experience of just seeing what goes into podcasts. And it kind of showed to me that anyone can do it, I guess. And that's why kind of like there isn't as much an excuse. Um, so my friend Diana, she does um, a, a she has a history podcast called The History Hotline, which looks at Black British history. And I think that's really important and that's um, really popular at the moment. And I think I've, I just shared those episodes with some of my family members because they're just so informative and so accessible. And all that's something which the Young Historians Project is looking into as well. Um, that's going to be one of our project outputs of our current project, um, a podcast on some of these or some of the women which we've interviewed. So I think those are some some of the key ways in which academic historians can promote public history um, or just make it more except make their history more accessible in general because I think that they all, they do play a massive role just of course not everyone is playing it to the same degree <laughs> yeah thank you so much for that Olivia that's um yeah it's really interesting I can't wait to listen to the Young Historians Project podcast when it's when it comes out and this kind of um, leads on perfectly to my next question. Um, and I kind of want to talk to you about your work with the Young Historians Project. I was browsing through the website and, you know, in preparation for this um, podcast and reading about your work and the organization's work. And what really struck me was the sense of community between the researchers mm. and the people you were researching, even just, you know, looking from the pictures alone at the website. Um, what benefits do you feel that community ties and personal affinities may have in researching and quote unquote doing public history? Um, yeah, I think it helps, kind of helps us be more sensitive, I think, as researchers, as I've already touched on. Um, I think it's a lot easier for interviewees to open up about experiences of racism or questions of identity um, to interviewees who they know have kind of gone through the same struggles. I think it that's it helps the interviewer as well be more sensitive and it puts the interviewee at ease, definitely, I think. And also um, quite a few of us have been able to use our family or personal connections to reach other women as well who perhaps um, academic researchers wouldn't have been able to reach if they didn't know um, where to look. So, for example, my sister's boyfriend's mum, I was lucky enough to interview her because she's a nurse who came from Zimbabwe in the early 2000s. And so we could interview her for the project. 
and just kind of sitting there with her looking through photo albums of her just showing me all the, this, these collections which she'd amassed over the years it really reinforces that personal aspect of history which you sometimes miss when you're trying to just sat in a library studying reading books and I think sometimes we lose sight of how important it is to sit down if it's possible to sit down with the historical figures that we're writing about and just speak to them um, and I think that's one of the reasons why I love doing more modern history um, especially the 70s and the 80s because I'm fortunate enough to, to be able to sit down with the, the women who I'm writing about and I think that's so important and that is something I think is just necessary for all researchers of more modern history. If the sub, if the subjects of your study are alive, then like you, you, why would you not want to hear from them? Like they are, their stories are so much more powerful than anything you could say. So I think that's something which the Young Historian Project enables as well. And also on a more personal note, you kind of develop long-standing friendships as well with some interviewees I still keep in touch from time to time with them because as I mentioned when you kind of go into someone's home and they open up to you you do kind of build a relationship and that's why it's stupid of those historians who keep trying to talk about history being objective um, when it's obviously it's not objective and that's just one example of just when someone sits down with someone and opens up to them there's always going to be some kind of bond there or at least there should be um, so I've really enjoyed that more personal element of interview interviewing um, women in particular and also I think it I I feel like whenever I go into an interview I always come out with a lot more than I anticipated and especially in terms of personal growth um, and because I think intergenerational conversation especially with the Young Historians Project where we're typically speaking to older women I've interviewed women in their 60s 70s 80s um, I think intergenerational conversations are so important for young people to ground themselves and especially feel part of something bigger um, when they're so uncertain about their own position and elders have so much wisdom from the experiences that they've mastered over the years and speaking to black women who survived what they had to in the 50s 60s 70s inspires me but also hearing them being vulnerable as well and kind of shows me that it's okay to be vulnerable and especially within a society within a world which has this whole strong black woman stereotype and has obviously then led to problems in in the medical profession where black women are four times more likely to die because of this stereotype so just hearing black women being vulnerable I think is so important as well especially within this society for pe like people to just sit down and know it's okay to not always be strong um, I think those are those are some of the personal dimensions of oral history which sometimes are overlooked as well yeah thank you olivia that's absolutely lovely and yeah i recall from when i did oral history interviews during my um year of six months really not a year of fieldwork in east africa i love doing oral history interviews the most because you really form a bond with your historical source right there that you can't get from archives normally yeah definitely i think just like for example um one interviewee who I met we were talking about just taking care of ourselves especially I think it was just be, it was before the pandemic we were just talking about ourselves taking care of ourselves generally our skin our hair and um the when my interviewee was talking about um, constitution bitters and how that helped with her health and how she would take it every day and after that I just went to the shop and I bought a bottle of constitution bitters and it's in my fridge now and I'm still drinking it because of 
I just kind of learned I learned a lot more than history that day I just learned so much about <laughs> take care of myself and that's that's something that's an experience I always treasure and that's why I think it's so important for people to get involved in oral history not simply from an academic point of view but from a personal point of view just just meet more people yeah and get to know them <laughs> yeah that's amazing I love that um so kind of moving on to um well it's not really different it uh, this touches on what you talked about previously you wrote a very interesting blog post for Harewood House called Power Whiteness Resistance Challenging the Facts of the Archive mm. um which I really enjoyed reading and for our listeners I'll post the link in the show notes um afterwards so you can read that for yourselves and in your work and research, what limitations have you come across within the conventional archive and how do you suggest or how do you go about navigating these? Yeah, I think in my current research project on Chapel Town, I think I've noticed those problems even more so because I think the um, the history of Black women's activism in Chapel Town especially is a history of marginalisation that has been further marginalised by the inaccessibility of the key sources that pertain to it. Um, and what I mean by that is that there are, it's very difficult to actually find records of these women's groups and activities, despite interviewees talking about them as though they happened yesterday. And that's simply because they either haven't survived or it's been difficult to locate them because they weren't deposited in institutional archives, because obviously some of these were the same institutions that had marginalised people. They're not going to go to those archives um, later on. So, and another reason why it's so difficult to find these records is because a lot of the organisations met in informal buildings, in their front rooms, in whatever spaces they could find because of the lack of funds. So like archives only tend to have developed later on. And unfortunately, that means when some of the material has already been lost. So you'll kind of be looking in a conventional archive. And so, for example, at the West Yorkshire Archive Service, which is our local one, and there's not as much as you would think. Um, so I think I've tried to go about filling in the gaps I suppose so as we mentioned oral history is a way of doing that as a person's testimony and remembering that the contradictions misremembering falsehoods arise as a natural part of giving testimony and are already found within archival sources anyway so that isn't a valid reason to dismiss the use of oral history and also these kind of contradictions within um, testimonies are also the useful indicators of the politics of remembrance and sometimes the controversy behind the concept of community, especially if an interviewee believes their account to be more valid than someone else's. So what is people perceive as problems with an oral history methodology can actually be used to explore, um, explore history further. And you can also look outside the conventional archive to find anthologies, collections of poetry, that's what I've been using, and books which activists published by themselves uh, but to paint their own portraits, as they've said in their own words. And um, something which Susan Pitter has done in Leeds with the Jamaican Society is um, it's an amazing social history project which puts together the funeral eulogies of members within their community because of how detailed those eulogies are with images, it has a timeline and and quotes about them and she's kind of turned that into a, a published book there was an exhibition and that's a powerful way in which we can piece together history which otherwise would have been lost to us um, and then also looking at personal collections as I've already mentioned and that's how that that social history project came about because people were able to dive into their own archives and I think people forget that we always create our own archives and just because it exists within our house doesn't mean it doesn't have as much authority as the ones residing in an institutional archive 
And then also, I guess, going back to that article, which you mentioned and looking at problems within the archive specifically, um, I think it's important to always, as, as historians, be critical and looking for alternative interpretations. Um, sometimes the older the source is, there's a tendency to believe it word for word as though age grants a piece greater authority. Um, and I think especially when dealing with um, enslaved resistance, as I was in that piece, and looking at witness testimonies that were actually given under torture, it's especially important to remember that. And given the conditions under which some witnesses were interrogated, the fact that some of them actually then challenged the claims which were made in those testimonies later on just kind of goes to show that. And if witnesses had been pressured to testify about a threat to white women as they did in those testimonies, then this would have further demonized the principal conspirators, which is what um, the court was set out to do. So I think just kind of remembering that and looking at a line where it says, where someone supposedly saying, oh yes, you wanted to murder all the white people and take the white women otherwise, et cetera, and think, okay, well, who, who is really speaking here? And it's always about the, the what if, and if there is, an, and that's another reason why history is always personal, um, because obviously if we're trying to think from someone else's perspective and think, okay, what could have been instead, then we're always going to be using our own experiences, whether we know it or not, to try and figure out historical problems. And as Sadia Hartman says, then we must press at the limits of the archive and imagine what could have been in order to challenge what seemingly was, because what is written on a piece of paper 200 years ago is not necessarily the full story, as some people seem to forget. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much, Olivia. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, and I guess, Kind of this leads on to my question looking at um, um, academic side of things, um, as I'm sure you're well aware, especially in light of the Black Lives Matter movement, recent years have seen um, calls to decolonize the academy mm. and especially the field of history, which um, in the global north still tends to be very Eurocentric. And as someone who is a public historian, but also a student and um, you know, studying Black British history and having organized a conference on marginalized histories as an undergraduate, how do you feel that the field of history can be made more inclusive, both within and outside the academy? Um, yeah, I think obviously I won't go into this too much because I've already spoken about it a lot, all history. Again, please do it, everyone, <laughs> uh, but including the people you research in your narrative is giving them space. Um, within the academy, especially within an academy, the history academy, which is 0.5% black or less than that. So it's especially important to get voices from outside the academy because of how, because of black people aren't represented well within it. Um, also inviting more non-academic speakers to present at academic conferences and public conferences. I think that's really important. Um, especially, though, for example, if you're having a talk on activism, like why don't you just actually invite one of the activists from the time to speak instead of a historian on activism who will be able to provide a very good insight. But I think it's also very important for the audience to engage directly with people involved in the history. So that's one way in doing it. So I remember speaking to some people at the University of York about what they could do for Black History Month and they were trying to find academics. And I was like, you don't have to just look at historians because obviously there aren't many Black historians in the academy and everyone's being swamped with invitations to suddenly perform or speak at the last minute. So, but the, and it kind of sets this precedent as though all information must come from the academy when 
actually an activist would probably know a lot more about what they did than someone who was studying what they did. So I think that's one way which could make the academy more inclusive. And also, I guess as well in recent years, and you might know more about this, um, but obviously within departments, there's a tendency to prioritize degrees from universities in the United States, and because obviously they have that reputation of being more prestigious. And what that actually does is that it shuts out more people from underrepresented backgrounds because to be able, especially if you're coming from England, to be able to go to the United States to train, that usually they tend to be second or third generation scholars. It'll very rarely be a first generation scholar. Mm. Um, also that makes it very difficult for a carer to go to the States to train for the so-called six years. And also people who are very like community engaged are not necessarily gonna want to go elsewhere to study. Mm. Um, especially for me the people who I wanted to reach the people I was doing the research for were here so it didn't make sense for me to go to the states regard despite all um, loads of academics trying to convince me to because they knew how the profession just prefers degrees from the states um, but I guess I just want a lot of departments to understand that by doing that you you may not know that you're cutting out a lot of people from unprivileged backgrounds. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, a lot of people from working class backgrounds can't necessarily just go off to the States to study for six years. Mm -hmm. like not everyone gets the chance. And that means that not everyone is given being given the opportunity to prove themselves within academia because as the starting point is, okay, you must have a degree from the States. So that itself is, I think, making the field of history, the, ac the academic profession more exclusive. Yeah, thank you so much, Olivia. And again, I find it fascinating um, as someone who's, um, I do both history and African studies. Um, and it's very similar, you see like similar issues in African studies, how um, UK and US and European degrees um, are higher up in a supposed hierarchy than um, degrees mm. from the global south, which is, yeah, but that is a whole, that's a, for a whole different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I guess my final question would be, um, what are your next steps in your work and research? And do you have any concrete plans? I mean, you can't really plan in this pandemic, but do you have any <laughs> idea of what you want to do next? Yeah, well, I would like to do a PhD. It just depends on whether I win this funding or not. So yeah. I'm just uh, obviously, you know, back, you know, in a few months and if you see me doing a PhD in September, you know, it worked out. And if you don't, then you know I didn't. Um, but that's the plan and yeah I, I think I'll probably be moving to London for that as well um, I'm currently working on something to release with Herod on their Caribbean collection um, so I'm looking forward to that that's something which is a little bit more concrete saving for the <laughs> PhD um, YHP yeah our current project was supposed to launch in December but for obvious reasons it's been difficult to do that and we also had to postpone some of the elements because of the chaos created by the lockdown um so hopefully we'll see how johnson's plan goes ahead but we'll be able to launch when it's safe to do so and that's something which we're looking forward to doing um i'm currently working with the leeds civic trust um who do the blue pack scheme in leeds um well, there's like a team of us and we're working to ensure that there's better representation of marginalized communities in Leeds within these plaques and looking at who is being commemorated and why um, and we've kind of sent out surveys uh, to kind of assess public opinion on whose voices they think are being missed out etc so hopefully that's something which will 
be able to see tangible results in a few months time and I will also be applying to the History Matters Conference, which I'd like to just quickly plug here for anyone who doesn't know. Um, but the History Matters Conference, if you Google it or look at it on Twitter, and they are accepting papers, uh, I think the deadline is 31st of March, accepting papers on Black British history, and they're particularly interested in young researchers of African and Caribbean heritage. So definitely um, look into that if you're interested in meeting more people um, in the field of history and kind of talking about your own research as well. So that's what I'll be focusing on in the next few months and then we'll see over the next few years. <laughs> so exciting, I love how, how you have all these things going on in a pandemic. Um, and hopefully, you know, we'll get call you Dr. Olivia in a few years from now. <laughs> the fingers crossed, gosh, I think I'm very looking forward. I just kind of almost just want to see you on the mail, see, see Dr. Yeah. Wyatt. <laughs> and be able to show my dad and <laughs> yeah I'm not gonna lie in like bad days that is kind of what keeps me going <laughs> um but yeah okay I'll stop the recording now thank you so much for making the time to talk to me I had a lot of fun I hope you enjoyed it too yeah thank you so much for having me I had a great time thank you thank you Thank you for listening to this episode of the Scottish Centre for Global History podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed producing it. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can visit our website, globalhistory.org.uk, email us on scgh at dundee.ac.uk, or follow us on Twitter at uodscgh. Thank you.